Well, this morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 12 once again. So if you want to take your Bibles and open there, that would be be great. It's been a while since we've been in Romans. Um, actually, I think back in November was the last time uh, we were here, just before our, our Advent series. Um, and we had uh, elder installation before that. We had a praise and prayer service. And so it's been a while since we've been here. And um, it's been a while since we've been in Romans chapter 12. Um, I think this is my 17th message in Romans chapter 12 alone, and so I think it's always good for us to, to really think and catch things in context. So I want to review for us a, a little bit about, about Romans. The book of Romans is about the gospel. It's about preaching the gospel. It's about Paul's desire to preach the gospel. He says, you can turn back there in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, And verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. He wanted to remind the saints there, the the believers, of the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. And and he does that by, by grace through faith. It's not based on our works before God or our religious efforts or our achievements or our righteousness. Our salvation comes simply as we believe in Christ. His perfect life is then imputed to us who died in our place. And that gospel is really good news that is to be proclaimed. It is good news that we all should be about proclaiming. The, the message of, of Romans here is eager to preach the gospel. It was Paul's eager desire. It ought to be our eager desire as well. And you can see how, how Paul even longed for that, not only just for those who are in Rome, but he also longed to preach the gospel to those who'd never heard the gospel before. You can turn over to Acts chapter 15 and, and verse 20. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And, and if you read through in Romans 15 here, we will in a little bit, is his desire to go on past Rome into Spain. And in Paul's day, Spain was like the end of the world. Like, like you go west of Spain and you have endless ocean. And the gospel not yet reached there. And Paul wanted to bring the gospel to there. He wanted to tell them the good news, that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wanted to preach the gospel to those who are in Spain. And and this, by the way, is the reason why he wrote Romans in the first place. He he was seeking help to get to Spain. He was seeking mostly financial help. But he would have taken help in any sort of way. Whether it was direction or relational or travel or someone had a boat to get him to Spain, he would have done that. He says in chapter 15 and verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And, and this you can even see Paul's ambition and his hope is to, to preach the gospel. At the beginning he talks about it in Rome. And at the end he talks about he wants to go to Spain to preach that gospel. It kind of makes a, a nice bookend, if you will. It's all, it's all about proclaiming the gospel to people. The book of Romans is a, a missionary letter. Which Paul is wanting to wanting to get support so we can take this gospel that he describes in Romans, but be able to take it to the world. It ought to make us eager to preach the gospel as well. And by the end of going through Romans, we ought to be more eager, more desirous 
to be sharing the hope that we have in Jesus. To the church, like Paul did in Rome. I mean, there's a way you preach the gospel. It brings encouragement to our souls. Or to those outside the church for evangelism. All this should be wrapped up in this phrase. I put it on the screen there. Eager to preach the gospel. You say, what's the gospel? Well, that's what Paul explains. Chapters 1 through, whatever, 14 or so. He's really centered here on the gospel. And so I've summarized what, what Paul has said in Romans. I have six words, all right? So they've been on the screen for a long time. I took them off the screen. What are the six words of Romans? The first word is what? Sin, then? Salvation, then? Sanctification, then? Security, then? Sovereignty, then? Service. Okay, how many of you can do that without your Bibles now? Okay, maybe, uh, I'm not sure if that's right there in the front or whether you got it memorized. So some of you may have just been reading, and I encourage you in the beginning of Romans to write down those, those six words. Okay, but you got to close your Bibles now? Okay, no screen? First word is what? Sin. Chapters 1 through 3. The next word is salvation. Chapters 3 through 5. The next one is sanctification. Chapters 6 and 7. Next word is security, chapter 8. And then sovereignty, 9 through 11. And then service, 9 through whatever, 12 through 16. So good. I'm encouraged by that. We just, I just want to continue to, to bang that drum and bang that drum. If you haven't got it, we're going to just even think through the, these words again. The sin, he says, our, our sin is broad and deep. It's brought in the fact that we all are sinners. There's no exception, whether that's uh, one who's religious or one who's not religious. And, and Paul talks in Romans chapter 1 about those who are not religious. The Gentiles grew up with no religious background, no knowledge of the Bible, and yet God, Paul said that they are without excuse, chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, even though, verse 21, they knew enough that the creation is submit to the Lord, they did not honor Him, ask God, or give thanks to Him. They had enough, even if they didn't have the Bible. In chapter 2, he picks up the Jews. Those who, just learned, those who grew up learning the law of God, who boast in their religious knowledge. And Paul said, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Chapter 2, verse 23. And the sum is in chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. None, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together become useless, worthless, There's no one who does good, not even one. And apart from the grace of God, our sin leaves us under the wrath of God. That's the first word there as we look at sin. The second word there is salvation. It's best explained in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. As many have described it, like the the most important paragraph in all the Bible. where, Where Paul contrasts, the wrath of God has been manifest, but now has been manifest the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God comes by faith. As it says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 4, Paul describes how this redemption comes, just like it came with Abraham, that, that we believe God and He gives us righteousness. Chapter 4 and verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right, we look up to God in faith 
and he looks down upon us as righteous. And chapter 5 describes the imputation of that righteousness into us. We received our sin from Adam by birth, and we receive our righteousness from Jesus by faith. Chapter 5 and verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So then by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous in Jesus. And that's, that's the realities of Christ. You, you believe in him and you are made righteous. And then Paul talks in chapter 6 and 7 about the difference that believing that makes in your life. Because it, it does make a difference in our life. The first command in all of Romans comes in Romans 6, 11. He says, you also must consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's the commandment to put away sin once and for all. Just get rid of it. Consider yourself dead to sin. But Paul knows of the struggle of that. He knows the struggle he himself had. Chapter 7 of sanctification deals with the, the struggle. Chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? Do you know what that's like? To, to hear the word of the Lord, to, to love it, delight in it and yet struggle in our flesh. And yet I see, he says in verse 23, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So sanctification, we ought to turn away and put away sin, and yet there's this struggle, and the struggle is a very fact of identifying that indeed you are a believer because you're struggling with those things. But despite the struggle, Paul assures us that we are secure in God's grace. We're saved by God's grace. We're secure in God's grace. And the beginning and end of this chapter is a great way to look at it. We are secure in the work of Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when you're in Christ Jesus, no condemnation is upon us. And we are secure in the love of Christ at the end of the chapter, verse 38 and 39. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're secure in the love of Christ. If there's no condemnation in, in Christ, that, that means that there's, there's nothing that God's going to condemn you. You're secure in the work that He did on the cross. And then likewise, if there's nothing to separate from the love of Christ, you're secure in His love for you. And then Paul follows by addressing this issue of the, the sovereignty of God. And he does that in verses 9 through 11. The issue is about Israel. And and, and they weren't believing. Has God's word failed? Chapter 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And he goes on to explain that everything is happening according to the plan of God. That he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he will harden whom he hardens. Nevertheless, everyone, chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And how this all works and the, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, chapter 9 and 10, right next to each other in perfect harmony. We don't know. Paul didn't know. He said, verse 33 of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Just amazed at the sovereignty of God. Amazed at at how it all works together. And then we see the hinge. This leading to the practical section here of Romans chapter 12. It all hinges in chapter 12 verse 1 where he, he sums up these five words. 
with these words, his mercies. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the fact that you were dead in your sin, and by the fact that he made you alive in Christ, and by the fact that you are secure in his love, all according to his sovereign plan. This is his mercy to us. None of this was deserved. None of this was merited. And he calls it his mercy. And according, by his mercies, then we ought to respond in a, in a way that's appropriate. And the appropriate response is to present your bodies, as he says in chapter 12, verse 1, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he goes and he talks about just the, the perspective and the, the motivation of our worship is the, the mercies of God and the power of our worship. The power of our worship is just the renewal of our mind and the attitude of our, our service is this humility. And then he talks about using our gifts. And then beginning in verse 9 and following, he just talks about the body life, giving a picture about love and what's that about. And beginning in verse 14, really focusing upon mercy. And we come now this morning to verse 18, which reads this way, Romans twelve eighteen. If possible... So far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Real short verse. Let's read again. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. All right? That was pretty weak. All right? Let's all say it together. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. One more time. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, Live peaceably with all. The title of my message this morning is appropriately entitled, Live Peaceably. Now, you know what? I don't think that I have ever spoken in natural English that word, peaceably. It's just not the way I, I normally speak. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament peaceably is used. It's used a handful of times in the English translation here about uh, living at peace or whatever it means. And... Um, uh, just e- even other translations, right? Sense this. And, and in fact, the NASB says, be at peace with all men. The NIV says this, live at peace with everyone. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. I love the message and how he paraphrases things in just a colloquial. He says, get along with everybody. That's, that's sort of the idea. And in fact, this idea is, my first point, is the, the command. Here it is. The command is to get along be at peace, be united. And, and the idea here is that Christians of all people ought to be peace-loving people. Now, when, when you hear of peace, you, you, might, you might be thinking of a, a VW van, a van, right? It's got the peace sign on the front and the love and all these bright colors all, all over the place. And um, you might think about the guy who drives the van, you know, some, looking something like that. Um, you know, not not a care in the world, enjoying drugs and rock and roll. But that's not peace. What is it? That's passivity. That's not what God is calling us to. In fact, if anything, He's calling us to pursue peace. He's, he's calling us with a, a passion to get on, making sure actively that we are at peace with one another. He's calling us to peace in our, our personal relationships, not this, this worldwide, uh, whatever, karma, softness, or, or whatever. He's not calling us to that. He's, he's picturing something different. He, he's, he's picturing a group, uh, as I say, of, of happy people around a table. 
enjoying fellowship together in unity and joy and love. This is the first Sunday of the month, and like clockwork, we have our, our regular fellowship dinner. And after church, we're going to gather downstairs for a time of food and fellowship. I want you to think of verse 18 of our time together. So you look out upon everyone. Like, this is what it means to live at peace with one another, to live peaceably with one another. As you, as you sit down and have encouraging, helpful conversations with other people, right, filled with unity and love and joy. Now, of course, verse 18 isn't telling you to stay after for church for dinner. But our dinner is a picture of this verse. In fact, really many ways, eating together is a test of peace. If you can share a meal together with someone, it probably is an identification that you're at peace with that person. But if you're not at peace with someone, just picture yourself having a meal together. An hour-long conversation that you're going to have. It's more difficult to do. Fellowship meal is a, is a symbol of what, pick, of what peace means. It's no accident then that the marriage supper of the Lamb is the picture of heaven. The, the picture of this endless table that goes on for eternity. That, that you can't see the end. How many places are there? Well, we don't even know. But this is the great time in which in which the multitude of believers sit down and celebrate at the marriage of the church to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. It's a picture when all is well in the universe. When all are worshiping the Lamb. And all are feasted around His table. All at peace. So this is the sort of peace that Paul is calling us to in, in verse 18. Now, the surrounding context helps to describe this peace. There, there are several verses here that, that describe what, what we're talking about. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. There's just love that we have for one another abounds in peace. When you have love for someone, peace often is is there as well. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, meaning our unity and peace is so close with one another, we actually share emotions. That when I rejoice, you rejoice. And when you weep, I weep. And we all weep together. Or verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Like there's the idea. Unity with one another. Harmony with one another. Love with one another. Peace with one another. And I think that's the, the idea here of this simple command to live peaceably with one another. Oops, we're, we're back here. We're not there yet. We are, we are here. And I just say this, though. Sadly, it's, it's not the case in churches. Churches are hotbeds and known for places where people don't live in peace. In fact, I, I received an email this week from a, a pastor friend of mine. He didn't know I'm preaching on this, wasn't talking about this. He just kind of threw it out to a circle of pastors that we have. We pray for one another. And uh, he said this, Men... I've been dealing with an issue and I've been thinking about for some time. He says, how to identify a toxic person? Starting with self-examination, of course. And what to do with them in your life. And, and, and listen, listen here strongly, just in the admonition of, of uh, Romans 12, verse 18. He says, in almost 15 years in full-time ministry, I'm convinced that these are the biggest threats to a solid Bible-believing churches. Actually, we are fertile ground for their destructive behavior. Of toxic people 
coming in who aren't doing everything they can to live at peace with one another, like Paul is, is commanding here. In fact, let me just pray for us that we could follow this. Father, I, I pray, even as my friend talked about, just toxic people who can't live at peace with others. Father, and how, how devastating and difficult that that is. Um, God, just would pray that you would provide at Rock Valley Bible Church uh, just a, a peace that would, God, be beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. God, that you would do it, that you would unify us, that we all would be passionate uh, about pursuing peace with one another. God, you've got to do it, <laughs> and I pray that you would God, give us the heart to pursue these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, however, though, notice in verse 18, <clears throat> Paul isn't calling us just to peace within the church. Uh, look what it says. It says, live peaceably with who? With all. And so that's not just all in the church. That is all everywhere. Not only those inside, but those outside as well. Now, as you think about it, Christians ought to be the most peace-loving people on the planet. I mean, the reason's simple, because through faith, in God, we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And having and being at peace with God gives us no real reason to be contrary to others. Right? When it comes to others, right, we have their best in mind. We don't need to sell them or trick them or use them. We're not going to use them to climb up some corporate ladder. We're not trying to sell them anything. We're trying to persuade them to come and follow Jesus and know the joy of life now and of life to come that, that comes through faith in Him. And so we ought to live peaceably. In fact, in several of Paul's letters, he, he alludes to this peace that we ought to have with those outside the church. He tells Timothy, chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2. He says, First of all then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. He says, so we need to be praying for all people. And then he mentions for kings, we should pray for them and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And the idea is that is to pray for our leaders so that we might live at peace. Because rulers of our nation can make life miserable for believers. Right? To enact laws and persecutions and hardships, which was the context of the first century. But, but our aim for us as citizens, as Christian citizens, is to live peacefully and quietly and with dignity in society. To be model citizens. So we can enjoy such a life. That's why we pray. He tells those in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. The idea here Paul is saying in the, the first century, particularly when Christians were so in the minority, to live under the radar, live peaceably, don't, don't be a burden or a bother to society, rather be a blessing instead, live at peace. Right, So when the mayor of, of Rockford thinks about Rock Valley Bible Church, what does he think? He should think blessed thoughts, even if it's on his radar. I'm not sure it is. But we should be a blessing to our leaders. We should know them. We should live peaceably. We should be supportive. 
And in particular, as we think about this command, I do think it comes hard against those who are natural contrarians. Maybe you call them toxic people. Who question everything. Who want to stir the pot. Who love the argument. But peaceful living oftentimes will, will shy away from those things. Um, not because they're not important, but will understand the priorities. Right? Peaceful living means that you, you don't always stir up the controversy. It means that you often smooth the ways. Uh, I know maybe if you know of a person you have a friendship with, if you bring the conversation into a particular area, you know this conflict's going to arise. And you've been over that bridge before, you've walked that path before, and the peaceful person won't bring that up, but will go around that topic. And that's the command to live peaceably with all people. We come now to the conditions, because Paul is wise enough to know that Peace isn't always the case, but sometimes it's not possible because he begins verse 18 by saying, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And when Paul says, if possible, that means there's times where what? It is not possible. We can't fully obey this command. We can't be peaceably at all. I mean, we can, if possible, be at peace with all. And uh, in fact, as we'll talk about next week in verse 21, we certainly can as we overcome evil with good, the evil with people. It gives us a, a confidence that we can overcome that evil with good and we can seek a peace. But there are times when peace just isn't possible. This is what Jesus was alluding to in Matthew 10, verse 34, when he said, Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. So this is why the Bible is such a a great book is because we could take this statement here about live peaceably with all men and just kind of say, oh, look at this. We can do this. But Jesus himself, who was the Prince of Peace, the one who would bring in an everlasting government that had perfect justice and righteousness forever. As Troy preached a few weeks ago, Jesus was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace came upon him. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This one who, who was bringing peace to the world. Though he said, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. You've got to figure out then, how, how is it that this is the case? And, and Jesus said these words in Matthew 10, the missionary context. He was sending out his disciples to, to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Preach to them that they should repent. Call them back to the Lord. And Jesus knew the conflict that they would face. He said in chapter 10 and verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. And you don't want to be sheep in the midst of wolves. When you're on their radar, you will be eaten up and devoured he told them, Matthew ten seventeen and 20, He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them to the Gentiles. Listen, that's the reality of preaching the gospel. We're, we're eager to preach the gospel. There are times when people won't like it. And they will persecute you for it. And they will be antagonistic against you in, in whatever scope that they have. Whether it's work or promotions or financially or, or reputation or, or whatever. It's not possible to have peace always. There, there's some conditions here. 
Jesus continues in Matthew 10 with, with these words. He says, I have come, Jesus says, right? He's the Prince of Peace. But he says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's because the gospel, which brings peace, won't always bring peace. Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword. It will divide and it will cut many times. In fact, the very peace with God that one experiences is the very same thing that causes contentions with the family. I've heard of many stories of people coming to Christ only to be disowned by their families. Only disinherited by their families. I've heard of this coming to blows. Dad so angry that his son left all his religious tradition to follow Jesus that physical violence was the result. I've heard many tensions within the home when People decide to follow Jesus and make lifestyle choices that their parents don't appreciate. Like lifestyle appointment uh, choices that say, I'm going to live more righteously. I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to, and they'll be like, why are you doing that? Just different worldviews cause tension within the home. But Jesus said, you need to choose. You need to choose between your family and Jesus. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. And Jesus says, you need to choose. You need to choose between the family and Jesus. Now, it's not always that you have to choose, right? Because if you have a believing family, right? You come in, the whole family is happy. The whole family is unified and peaceful. It's a wonderful thing. But there are times when the family is just, and he says, well, you're going to choose your your unbelieving family. You're going to choose me. And we have to choose Jesus. And that creates strife and there's tension. And sometimes it's just not possible to have peace with others. But there's a second condition. And he he says this, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. In other words, if peace is not possible between you and someone else, you need to make sure it's their problem and not your problem. You see how well this works in terms of solving problems of conflict, right? This person has a conflict with this person, and this person is trying to make sure that it's him who's the problem, and this person is trying to make sure it's him who's the problem. So he's trying to, I'm looking, it's not my problem, right? I, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to make peace. And this person over here is saying, I'm trying everything I can to do to make peace. And then if that's the case, what's going to happen? Certainly there's opportunity to make peace. But, but it, see, it's, it's when you say, I'm not the problem, you're the problem. When two people are saying, you're the problem, you're the problem, you're the problem, there's not going to be peace. But when people are working really hard to say, okay, I'm not going to be the problem, I'm not going to be the problem, you can work hard. I remember talking with a friend of mine who had converted to Christ, was experiencing some problems with unsafe parents who were unhappy about how he was raising his children. And, and he told me this, he says, you know, the Bible tells a son to honor his parents he says, I want to do this in every way possible. I want to be an obedient son to my unsafe parents. So whatever they tell me, I'm going to seek to try to obey and honor them in whatever I can do. But whenever I can see a clear passage and verse of Scripture that tells me contrary to what they're going to do, I need to do it. I'm going to show it to them and say, Mom and Dad, listen, I want to honor you in, in every way. And, and I have. I've done this. I've done that. I've supported you, encouraged you, called you, visited you, whatever. But you're calling me to do this, and I can't. And so the only things in which he wanted to be disobedient to his parents were 
were those which weren't his own opinions, but were the, the word of God. And his hope and prayer, he said, is that they will see that he's not following his own passions, his own thoughts, his own desires, but he's following God in these areas, being very disciplined in that. That it's his obedience to the Lord that compels him to, to do that. Right? What, a, what a great illustration of doing everything possible. So the problem isn't with me, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. Pledging to bend as far as possible to seek peace with his parents, but holding a line when it comes between choosing between his parents and the Lord. And what a, what a good barometer, what a good measure that would be. And in fact, in chapter 14 and 15, Paul's going to illustrate this point about being at peace with everybody. The, the issues, you can kind of turn over there if you want. The, the issues there have to do with diets and days. Paul sets forth some people who, who believe that you can eat anything. Others who, because of their religious upbringing, say, no, 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 you can only eat vegetables. Or, or some believe that, that every day is alike, but some believe, no, there's a particular day. And so this diets and days, and, and what, what Paul does is dealing with these things, he says, bend for the sake of peace. It's an exact illustration of verse 18 in our text today. Look over at chapter 14, verse 13 and following. This is his conclusion regarding these things, which... We're going to start picking up some speed here in chapter 13 and 14. So we'll be here within a, a month or two. He says this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In other words, right? So far as it depends upon me, I'm not going to hinder or stumble, cause other people to stumble. Then he says, I know and I'm convinced Persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Right? And there's that same thing. As far as it depends upon you, let not what you do be spoken of as evil. Let not the evil be on you. Rather, you do the good. And, and don't destroy other people and your relationship and your peace with them because of you holding to yourself. Right? You bend for the sake of others. And then he, he says this, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's, it's not these things. So, so bend on these things. But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's peace. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about peace. Verse 18, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That whole idea of being approved by men, that just means that there's peace among there. Acceptable to God, approved by man. What a wonderful thing, right? When you, you bend for the sake of peace. And then it comes. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, peace is more important than your own opinions and your own practices. So as it depends upon you, do whatever you can to live peaceably with others. So any conflict you have, can you say in the integrity of your heart, God, I have dealt righteously in this case. I have confessed my wrongs. Sought to do right, sought in every way possible that I could to be at peace in this situation. That's your aim in every relationship. Okay, finally, I just want to give some counsel. Now, 
conflict resolution is a huge topic. All right? So my counsel is going to be very brief. It's not exhaustive. In fact, even if I had a series of sermons on peacekeeping, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. Every situation is a little bit different, but I can give you some counsel, so bear with me a little bit. I just want to ask you, right, are you experiencing conflict with others? Maybe picture someone in your mind. Maybe think of past conflict. Are there those in your relational world who do you find difficult to speak with? Or maybe even have a meal with, or even to be in their presence? Those are the people that he's talking about to be at peace with them. And I'd say, first of all, just be encouraged. Okay? Because Paul, though he's speaking this, he himself was not blameless in this. He had something similar. In Acts 15, Paul, in Acts 13, went out on a missionary journey with he and Barnabas. They, they planted all these churches. They, they saw converts to Christ, and they came back. And after some time, they said, oh, let's go visit all these people and all these churches. Let's go visit them on their second missionary journey. And, and both Paul and Barnabas said, yeah, that, that'd be wonderful. And then they started having conflict. They started having conflict about who to bring with them. And Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark. And Paul said, I don't want John Mark to come. But Barnabas wanted him to come. He he was his cousin, so maybe he had some family relationships there. He wanted him to come. He believed in him. but, But Paul said, no, because John Mark was with them on the first journey and had deserted them, went home halfway through the journey. In fact, a quarter way through the journey, went home from the island of Cyprus. He sailed back home. And they sailed on and up and through Asia Minor and back. And Paul said, no, he deserted us. He's not going to come back. And Barnabas said, I think he's good. I think it'll be good. And Paul said, we're going to visit these churches where we worked and labored. But he didn't even labor there. He said, that's okay, but he's, he's a faithful boy. He, he needs to come along with us. And we read in Acts 15, 39 and 40. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departing having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. They had a conflict, a disagreement so large that they couldn't resolve it. So they separated from one another. Now, the good news is this. You trace the life of John Mark through uh, Paul's epistles. You see him at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, saying that, that Mark, he wants him to come because he is, quote, very useful to me for ministry, end quote. So Paul, who had, John Mark, who had originally deserted him, at some point kind of came around and the conflict wasn't there and there was a, a united posture between he and John Mark. Now, we don't know about Paul and Barnabas. The last we hear of Barnabas is he sailed away. Who knows? They may have conflict to their dying day. I'm not exactly sure, but we know John Mark, things were resolved. And here's, here's the lesson, right? Be encouraged, but also know that it takes time. If you're experiencing conflict, give it time. And in that time, pray and fast and seek the Lord. And it may just be years down the road, when you're reflecting upon someone you had conflict with, you might scratch your head and say, you know what? I'm not even quite sure what the issue was that caused our our rift. In fact, I, I remember some People left our church a decade ago, and and uh, I remember whatever about three years ago, someone calling me about these people said, huh, "These these people left your church." I'm like, "Yeah, you know what? They did." I don't quite remember 
why they left the church. And there was some conflict, and there was some difficulty, but it was some time that had, had passed. And it's sweet to see time pass, and then things restored, um, to be unity, united with that, and that is a, a sweet thing. So be encouraged, give it time. Just a, a third thing, if you're experiencing conflict, seek the help of others. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives the well-known instruction what to do when people in the congregation are sinning or someone sins against you or you have something against them. He says you, you try to resolve the things right one-on-one, but if that doesn't work and that breaks down, bring someone else into the process. Because there are times when a mediating party can resolve a conflict and tension between people that, that someone else comes in from the outside, sees things objectively, and they can try to sort things out and try to help. That's why people go to counselors. That's why people go to therapists, because it's third, third party helps. So I go to mediation, right? And people mediate trying to do that. that. That can be helpful. Because they can see things that maybe you can't. Galatians 6.2 exhorts us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And part of that burden to play might be a mediating role between two people. So if you're having a conflict and you want to resolve it, pray about who might be strategic to come along to help. Not, not someone who's going to be on my side, but someone who's really going to come and be a help in that conflict. Again, doing whatever it is that you can do so it's not depending upon you. As a, you know what, I've, I've, I even brought someone else in to try to resolve this conflict. And if someone asks you to be a, a peacemaker, be a peacemaker. It's hard work, but it's a blessed work. Jesus said, Matthew 9, 5 verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So maybe you seek some help. So be encouraged. Give it time. Seek some help. And I just close with a, with a book. It's really a, a classic book. It's the, the Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And uh, this book deals with uh, peacemaking. And uh, also has a huge ministry of peacemaking services. Oftentimes churches with huge conflicts will call Ken Sandy and his group in to say, help us as a church resolve this conflict. And it is messy and it is difficult um, the subtitle of this book is said, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And, and this, message, this book gets into far more detail, far more suggestions than I could do in, in a sermon or a, a sermon series. But he's got a chart uh, early on in the book that is, is really worth the price of the book. He calls it the, the slippery slope of conflict. And listen to what he writes about it. He says, There are three basic ways that people respond to conflict. These responses may be arranged on a curve that resembles a hill. On the left slope of the hill, we find the escape responses. Or if you will, the the fight, I'm sorry, the flight responses. Just just get away. On the right-hand side are the attack responses. That would be the fight responses. Fight and flight and in the center, we see the peacemaking responses. And these are the ways which, which you're seeking to make peace. He says, imagine that the hill is covered with ice. And if you go too far to the left or the right, you can easily lose your footing and slide down the slope. Similarly, when you experience conflict, it's easy to become defensive or antagonistic. Both responses make matters worse and can lead to more extreme reactions. If you want to stay on top of this slippery slope, you need to do two things. First... Ask God to help you resist the natural inclination to escape or attack when faced with a conflict. So you just think about the conflicts you've had. And, and some, some of us might tend to be escape artists. 
We're just going to not talk about that. We're not going to deal with it. We're going to go away. And others tend to be attack dogs, right? We're going to deal with this thing front on. We're going we're to try to get it. We're going to kind of go at things just to solve this thing. But you ask God, what is, what is my natural inclination? And, and, and may God give help to resist that. He said, second, ask God to help you develop the ability to live out the gospel by using peacemaking responses that best suited to resolving a particular conflict. And the escape responses, right, right there, denial, right, or, or running away from it, or even suicide is a way of escape. Like, it's so bad, I, don't, I just want to deal with it. I'm just going to kill myself. And, and the attack responses on the other side, right, assault, right, punching people, or suing people, right, monetarily-wise, or even murder is just the word, conflict, right, I'm just going to kill the other guy. But then the peacemaking responses, right, right there in the middle, and then kind of on the escape side, right, you can just overlook it. That's that's a, an overlooking. That's an escape, a flight sort of thing. Or you can seek reconciliation or negotiation. It's kind of just bringing you back in. Or mediation is more um, is is more aggressive. Or even arbitration or accountability. Those are just higher in terms of the attack side. So all all these things are good peacemaking responses. In the book, he goes through all of them with detail. Right? If you tend to run, this is what it looks like. If you tend to attack, this is what it looks like. And how to respond, he, he really talks about that. But there's another picture I think is better, easier to understand. This is from the young peacemaker, which I, I think his wife wrote. I'm not exactly sure. It's the same picture, but there on the top, you see these guys, right, pointing at each other. And the one's got a shirt there that says conflict is a, a slippery slope. And you got hot butter there, and you got a skateboard with wheels, and the guy's got soap attached to the bottom of his feet, and a banana peels, and sk- just like, whoa, we got to stay on top of this thing, and we slip around. And then, and the same idea, though, that in the middle is when you're working it out, and on the one side, you got the escape, and the other side, you got the attack, and the escape, you know, this is really good for kids, right? The escape is when you're running away, right? And then, then the attack mode is when brothers and sisters are, are putting up their dukes and, and fighting it down. Right? And, and there are different ways that, um, that, that the words are a little bit different. They're a little dumbed down, more, more for kids. Right? The escape is to run away or to blame. Oh, it's their fault. It's their fault. Oh, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That's running away from your conflict. Or, or the attacking is the put-downs. Oh, you're so bad. Or gossiping, telling others how bad you are, or even physically fighting. But the idea of working it out is on the escape side is just to overlook it. Just don't worry about it. On the attack side is to say, okay, let's be more aggressive about this. Let's get help. Let's, let's bring people in on this. And then just talking it through so that you can be at peace with all people. And you know what? There's, there's one part of this picture that really is the best part. That's the part where brother and sister arm in arm. And they're working it out. And they're at peace with each other. And that's my prayer for us at church, that we, through our conflict, would work it out. And that we would follow after Paul, that we would live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Father, would pray you would give us grace, O oh God, to, to work out conflict in a, in a right way. God, if, if there are those who have bigger cases of conflict, I pray there would be others in the body could help. God, that the time would be given there that we'd pray for those persecuting us. We'd pray for those we're not at peace with. God, I just even pray especially for 
for our church. Um, God, that you would create within us a, um, an atmosphere of peace. God, I just thank you for the testimony. Our church is so much more peaceful than many other churches are. God, just thank you for that. would pray that you would continue that on. I pray that we would excel still more in these things, O oh God. Be our strength. Help us, O oh God, as far as it depends upon us, if possible, that we would live peaceably with all people. God, we do that for the glory of Christ. God, we pray also for our fellowship dinner. Lord, we pray that be a great picture of us, the church. Sitting down with, with people. God, we could, each of us could sit down with every other person because um, the conflicts there are, are minimal. God, that we have peace with everyone. May, may that be true. May it be a picture of us as we eat together. We are thankful for how you provide in abundance for us all the food. God, you supply everything that we need. God, we are, are thankful for Christ Jesus. He died for us, gave us peace with you through faith. I would pray you'd help us, as Romans 12 speaks, to respond rightly. pray in Jesus' name, amen.